A new man in the president's ear to help decide the next step with Iran. The lead starts right now. Breaking news, President Trump names a new national security advisor and he turns up the heat on Iran. And as the U.S. government claims new evidence may show, Iran has launched the missiles that blew up a Saudi oil field. Also breaking today, possible terrorist ties. Prosecutors say an airline mechanic accused of sabotaging a passenger jet had a graphic ISIS video on his phone, and that's just the beginning. Plus, Stonewalled, America's intelligence chief, denies Congress a look at an urgent whistleblower complaint as mandated by law. What is the Trump administration hiding? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with the world lead today, President Trump today, trotting out his fourth national security advisor in less than three years amid growing tensions with Iran. Robert O'Brien, who served as special envoy for hostage affairs at the State Department, has been tapped for the new role one day after the president quoted O'Brien as calling him, the president, the, quote, greatest hostage negotiator in history. The president today also announcing as part of the response to the bombing of the Saudi oil fields plans to substantially increase sanctions against the Iranian regime and warning the U.S. has additional options on the table, including potential military confrontation. Right now, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia reviewing the evidence collected from the attacks, which Pompeo called a, quote, act of war. Pompeo, over the weekend, directly blamed Iran for the attack, though President Trump has been a bit more circumspect about definitively pinning the blame. The president is being pushed and pulled in every direction. So what will Mr. Trump ultimately do? CNN's Barbara Starr kicks off our coverage from the Pentagon. Standing next to his new national security advisor, President Trump still stopping short of military action against Iran for its alleged attack on Saudi oil facilities. We're really at a point now where we know very much what happened. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo shortly before landing in Saudi Arabia for talks with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman told reporters that the strikes on Saudi oil facilities were an Iranian attack on an unprecedented scale, calling it an act of war. There were no Americans killed in this attack, but anytime you have an act of war of this nature, there's always risk that that could happen. However, Pompeo did not provide details definitively showing the attack was launched from inside Iran. You can see of the debris. Today, Saudi defense officials showing the world remnants of what they say are alleged Iranian missiles and drones used in the massive attack that disrupted world oil markets. Iran denies involvement, but the Saudis insist the weapons are of Iranian origin. The attack was launched from the north and was unquestionably sponsored by Iran. While via Twitter, President Trump announcing he is imposing more sanctions. The Pentagon has been told to ensure plans for military options are up to date, but there is no indication of imminent U.S. military action. Several officials telling CNN any strikes would have to be a coalition effort. Thank you very much. And President Trump wants the Saudis involved. And we're looking at those issues now and getting briefed up. What to do next about Iran may be front and center for Robert O'Brien, the U.S. hostage negotiator Trump named as his new national security advisor. He did a tremendous job on hostage negotiation, really tremendous, like unparalleled. We've had tremendous success in that regard. One senior White House official says it shows Trump 
wants a consensus builder, not a showboater. A dig, perhaps, at predecessor John Bolton, a well-known hawk. A peace through strength posture that will keep uh, the American people uh, uh, safe from the many challenges around the world today. And in the latest development, it's been announced that Saudi Arabia has now joined the international coalition to try and ensure maritime security in the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. Jake. All right, Barbara Starr for us at the Pentagon. Thanks so much. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Senator, thanks for joining us. A U.S. official tells CNN uh, that they have imagery showing weapons used in the attack being staged in Iran. Have you seen this intelligence? Are you convinced Iran is responsible? Uh, I have read some limited intelligence that was provided to the United States Congress. Uh, Upon reading it, uh, it seems to me that there was likely Iranian involvement in this attack. But I think the details are still to be decided. And I would like the chance to be able to talk to uh, those who have interpreted the intelligence we have. Um, That's an important question. But this idea that the administration has, uh, that we have some secret defense treaty with Saudi Arabia, um, I think is really dangerous. Ultimately, this was not an attack on the United States. This was an attack on Saudi oil assets. And this administration is acting as if uh, we are the security guarantor for all of our friends and allies in the Middle East. That is never how we have conducted our business, in part because we know that when the United States gets militarily involved in the Middle East, more things go wrong than go right. So this is a moment, I think, for very careful consideration of what we do and what we advise the Saudis to do. The, the argument uh, would be, I think, Senator, that, that the attack on the Saudi oil field is an attack on the world economy, not just on one country. Uh, do you disagree with that? Well, let's just remember how this all started, Jake. It started because the United States pulled out of the Iranian nuclear agreement and then started sanctioning the Iranian economy, limiting their access to the world oil market as well. And at some point, uh, there has to be an adult who is going to start an, a de-escalatory cycle. We are caught in an escalatory cycle in which each side decides to respond in kind. It will eventually get us into a war. And so what I would recommend to this administration is that they find a way to start talking directly to the Iranians about how to get us out of a pattern that is headed towards a place where no one wins. It seems as though the U.S. government uh, takes very seriously the intelligence and information being provided uh, to the U.S. government, to the Trump administration, uh, by the, the Saudi government, the Saudi foreign minister and others. Why should the U.S. believe a word they have to say, given how they blatantly lied about how they murdered uh, Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi? Right. Remember, for 20 days, the Saudis told us they had nothing to do with Jamal Jamal Khashoggi's murder. And in fact, they had not only murdered him, dismembered him and knew about it for those entire two weeks. Add to that the fact that they have been misrepresenting the nature of their military involvement in Yemen for years, uh, intentionally targeting civilians when they told us they weren't. Um, I just find the whole nature of the relationship to be preposterous. The Trump administration acts as if we are the inferior partner. When the Saudis need our help, we go to Saudi Arabia instead of the Saudis coming here. We decide that we're going to wait until the Saudis tell us what they want to do. Um, That's not how this relationship works. The Saudis need the United States much more than we need them, especially when today their oil isn't as important to us as it used to be. And I wish that we would start acting like we are what we are, which is the dominant partner in this relationship. Let's say that the Iranians did actually carry out this strike, not just uh, the Houthi rebels who are allied with Iran, but actually Iran. What do you think would be the appropriate response, if anything? 
So the response would be to try to convince all parties in the region to stop this series of escalatory measures. I get it that it would probably make a, a lot of Americans feel good if we responded tit for tat. But if that ultimately gets us into a shooting war with the Iranians, that's not good for anybody. So at some point, there has to be a movement uh, to end these escalations. And so even if the Iranians were directly involved, it may be that the Saudis decide to take action themselves. Why on earth have we sold the Saudis hundreds of millions of dollars worth of weapons if they can't defend their own territory? The United States should be playing the role uh, of the de-escalator here, the, the force for, uh, for, for peace and for a reasonable outcome to what is an unreasonable escalation of actions right now. Would you support President Trump meeting with Iranian President Rouhani at the UN General Assembly, given what's occurred over the last several days with Iran, or even independent of that, just to uh, try to improve relations? Well, I think we should start talking to the Iranians right now uh, about how to, to, to stop this crisis from getting any worse. Um, my only worry about the president talking to Rouhani is that it might make things worse, not better. If there is no exchange of uh, diplomatic priorities ahead of that meeting, I'm not sure we come out better at the end of it. So how diplomacy normally works is that you actually have mid-level bureaucrats and diplomats talking to each other before the principals get together. That's not how this administration has worked, and we see how uh, it's gone in North Korea. So I generally don't have any problem with talking to our adversaries, but in this situation, I think it might be better for uh, Secretary Pompeo or people that work from him to do some outreach ahead of a meeting between Trump and Rouhani. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, thanks so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks. Alarming revelations today about a commercial airline worker accused of trying to sabotage a flight right before takeoff in the U.S. Why prosecutors believe he has multiple ties to the terrorist group ISIS. That's next. Plus, the teenager from Sweden who took Capitol Hill by storm today. Stay with us. We're back with breaking news in our national lead now. An authority is alleging today that the American Airlines mechanic accused of trying to sabotage a plane before takeoff, the one who claimed he did so in order to earn more overtime pay, has ties to ISIS. They say not only did Abdul Majid Alani have an ISIS video on his phone, but the suspect claims his brother is actually a member of the terrorist group. I want to bring in CNN's Renee Marsh. Renee, what else are we learning about the suspect's alleged ties to the terrorist group? That's right. A lot came out in federal court. And keep in mind, this is in the context of a bond hearing where these prosecutors were arguing that his his bond be denied. All that being said, uh, besides the ISIS video that they say not only was on his cell phone, but that he shared it with others. Uh, they also say that Alani told fe fellow employees at American Airlines that he traveled to Iraq to visit his brother, who was a member of ISIS. Uh, prosecutors also said that the defendant's roommate uh, said that he traveled to Iraq uh, because his brother had been kidnapped. Uh, another allegation that came up in court was that uh, on Alani's cell phone, there was a news article that he received from an unknown sender, which essentially referenced the Lion Air plane crash. Remember, that was a plane crash that involved that 737 MAX. That was the first crash um, involving the 737 MAX. That article made specific references uh, to the air data module system that happens to be the same system that he tampered with on that commercial airliner. But Renee, we should underline this. Despite all these allegations in court in this bond hearing, 
Alani's not charged with any terror-related crimes, right? That's right. I mean, at this point, he's not. He's he's charged with tampering with this plane. Uh, but that's not to say at some point additional charges will be added. But as I speak to you, he is not facing any charges having to do with terrorism. All right, Renee Marsh, thanks so much. I want to bring in former CIA counterterrorism official uh, Phil Mudd. Uh, Phil, what's your initial response when you hear about this longtime airline employee, Alani having alleged ISIS ties. Uh, my first response is, is, look, you're going to look at this and say he must have been an ISIS member. I'd have a couple basic questions. Number one, why are you putting something over a sensor instead of taking the plane down if your intent is to commit an act of terrorism? The other thing is the terrorists that I'm experienced with, once you take them down, they want to send a message to the world that they're proud of what they do. Why does it take the prosecutors to say he's an ISIS member? Why doesn't he stand there and say, I did it for the cause of God. I'm a member of ISIS. This is confusing, this one. Well, also, I mean, I just have to say, and I have no idea about, about this individual's ties to ISIS or his, or his guilt or his innocence, but I have to say, prosecutors often, especially in a bond hearing, juice up as much information as they have to try to get the judge or the jury, the judge in this case, uh, on their side. Sure, and I'm with them on this. Let me give you an example of why. If you see a video on someone's camera, if that individual has traveled to Iraq, obviously the heartland of ISIS, one of the questions you might have before a judge is it's very complicated, judge, to look in a war zone and determine what this individual was doing in Iraq, what his brother was doing, what his relationship with terrorists was, whether he sent money to terrorists years ago. So they got to investigate this. Even if they don't uh, level charges of terrorism, I don't see why they don't tell the judge, leave him in jail. We got to look. Although I have to say, I mean, the individual uh, has a brother who's a member of ISIS, according yeah. to him. Uh, and he did this act. He committed this act. He had this stuff on, on his phone, even if he doesn't have ties to ISIS ultimately or didn't have a, a terrorist intent. Ultimately, you'd think there'd be some sort of screening process where he wouldn't be, you know, allowed to work on planes. I mean, that makes sense. But what the heck are you going to do once you get somebody in the door? Are you going to have a comprehensive program, whether you're at the CIA or American Airlines, or United Airlines, any airline around the world or an airport? Are you going to have a screening program to look at people's cell phones? Are you going to screen their Facebook pages? Are you going to screen their private travel to determine where they can go and where they can't? On principle, you want to say, we're going to look at people who have access to an airplane over time after they get a job in practice. I don't know how you do it, Jake. All right, Phil Mudd, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The president said today that he's building a border wall. Note that the word new is not in that line. We're going to separate the promises made versus reality next. Stay with us. We are back with our politics lead now. In the next hour, President Trump will visit a section of the border wall in California. He's anxious to show his voters that he's making good on a key campaign promise to build the wall, even though we should point out no new wall is being built yet where some sort of barrier did not already exist. What has happened is barriers have been constructed to replace what was there already. And, of course, Mexico is not paying for any of it. But be that as it may, CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now. Homeland Security, the department overseeing this all, is being led by only acting chiefs, with another top official of that department having just been fired. Uh, we're going to the border. President Trump will close out a fundraising swing on the West Coast with a stop at one of his biggest campaign promises, a promise he hasn't fulfilled yet. We're going to show you a lot of wall. We're building a lot of wall. Despite that claim, no new wall has been built along the southern border as of August. Though his administration argues that replacing old barriers with new barriers counts. Trump's border tour comes one day after the White House fired the Department of Homeland Security's general counsel. John Mitnick was expected to be pushed out months ago after Trump's close advisor Stephen Miller pushed for him to go during a purge of the department's leadership. But he managed to hang on for several more months. 
His departure now adds to the revolving door of officials at DHS, which critics say has created a void in leadership in the department that's supposed to oversee the nation's borders and domestic terrorism threats. And Trump isn't leaving California without one last swipe at the Democratic stronghold. Today, he announced his administration will revoke the state's authority to set its own vehicle emission standards. That authority let the state set stricter standards than federal rules, and 12 other states followed in California's place. The state's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, firing back at the president and his party. I don't know what the hell has happened to the Republican Party. And by the way, where is the Republican Party right now? Now, Jake, the president might be clashing with Democrats while he's here, but he's raising a ton of money while doing so. He's expected to take home about $15 million after, after a two-day fundraising swing over here on the West Coast as he heads back to Washington later tonight. All right, Caitlin Collins traveling with the president. Thanks so much. Let's chew over all this with our experts. Uh, let me start with you. This is a new replacement border wall for what had, had previously been there. Does President Trump, is, does it matter to his base if there's actually any new wall over new places that had not had any barrier there before? I think it does, Jake. I mean, this was the prominent, preeminent thing that the president campaigned on and for which he got all the support. I don't think anybody really expected him that, that Mexico was going to pay for the wall, but they expected some wall. And that's why you see the president is so desperate to appropriate funds from wherever he can to get some new wall. And, and I think, yeah, there's got there, there's going to be some bad commercials of Democrats down the border filming no wall that's been built. Um, and, and while President Trump is trying to fulfill this, this wall, we should point out there you have an acting Department of Homeland Security secretary, acting ICE director, acting U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services director, acting Customs and Border Protection commissioner. Are we to assume that Majority Leader McConnell just doesn't care about advising consent anymore? It just does. It's well, just- from, for some of them, they have no nominees at all. Like There's like a real continuity problem here, uh, just a sort of basic governing issue with getting people through the process. Um, as far as the wall goes, I, I don't, I might actually disagree with you. I'm not sure that Trump supporters actually care. If he stands in front of a wall type structure and says, we're doing some things and we put some new stuff up, they're mostly happy because they think someone else is fighting him on it, right? Like he's fighting their battle and maybe he hasn't gotten all the stuff done yet, but I don't, I'm not sure that they care that much. Is this an issue that Democrats can actually uh, use the way Mark suggests or is it, or does it matter because of what Mary Catherine said? I'm not sure if they can fight the fight on his terms, which is, oh, he didn't actually get the wall built. Um, What I am interested in is, you know, there was some interesting reporting in The Washington Post today about these budget requests from Republicans and Democrats over the years, where they warned that a lot of these um, projects that are being canceled would do things like make uh, conditions for living for military families dire, make uh, schools uninhabitable or unlivable. And can that be used as a means of saying, look what he's doing. This is a political prop, and he's putting the men and women and their families at risk. Especially if there's a crisis in one of those areas. Exactly. And there could be, unfortunately, uh, because of this. So I don't think they can win on the play his game like it's not New Wall, but there are other ways they can can play this game. And Jamal, uh, speaking of playing their game, uh, the president is in California. The administration is announcing it's going to get rid of that state's ability to set its own emission standards. I mean, I... There is an argument here about whatever happened to states' rights. Well, you know, I think part of the reason California gets to do this is because Washington is so dysfunctional when it comes time to deal with anything with climate change, to raise emission standards. I was chief of staff for a member of Congress from Michigan for a year, 
And I got to tell you, this is never something that anybody from that state wanted to hear about. But if California did it, then all the other uh, companies, the companies would have to acknowledge it. Because once you start doing it for California, you can't do 50 different sets of standards. So it makes sense. But it's amazing that the Republicans who have been pro-states rights people <clears throat> now say when a state wants to do something good for the climate and the environment, the answer is no. And with something else that's interesting, Mark, um, President Trump expected to net as much as $15 million just on this trip. That's $3 million more than Kamala Harris raised in the whole second quarter of the campaign, Senator from California. Um, he's going to have a big war chest, and that's going to be a big fear for Democrats. Monstrous. And, you know, this is uh, just an example of the power of incumbency. And Trump didn't raise a lot of money the first time around, but he, you know, he has uh, the highest support among a political party of any president ever, except for George W. Bush right after 9-11. So, and it's showing up in the money. And they are they are uh, cranking it up, and so they're going to have an enormous war chest, and they're already doing spending a lot of it and t- targeting key voters. Can I just add a, a passage from coverage of this uh, yeah. fundraiser that is very of the moment? That he was joined by Donald Trump Jr. and his girlfriend, former Fox host Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is also the ex-wife of Governor Gavin Newsom of California, and. Actor and Trump critic Tom Arnold was at the hotel trolling Trump supporters as they arrived for the fundraiser. 2019, everyone. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the point that, that Mark made about um, him spending it is a really important one because yeah. Democrats can't underestimate the fact that he's not only raising a ton of money, he is spending it digitally, online, everywhere, and far outspending Democrats, defining who he is, defining who the Democrats are, def- scaring people as to what the Democrats are presenting. That's a challenge, a huge challenge for Democrats. Well, you know, on this point, this goes back to the conversation you guys were having about the wall, because if, if the reports are true and what President Trump is doing is trying to find every angry white voter he can find as upset or anxious about the changing American demographic, he runs on the wall. Democrats should be using the fact that he's actually not building the wall as a counter message to those same people on Facebook and Twitter or wherever they're campaigning. Yeah, everyone stick around. Uh, we got more to talk about two groups and one shared goal, putting pressure on the issue of gun control, how they're trying to do it next. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, if you have lost track or interest in the current debate in Washington about what to try to do to curtail gun violence, these back-to-school ads from two groups advocating for tighter restrictions on guns are designed to remind you of the actual stakes. These new sneakers are just what I need for the new year. These scissors really come in handy in art class. These colored pencils, too. I finally got my own phone to stay in touch with my mom. That ad from Sandy Hook Promise, which was founded by family members of children and faculty killed in the Newtown Massacre. Here's another from a group affiliated with Gabby Gifford's organization. These ads are tough to watch. Um, are they effective? Are they, I mean, it's, especially the one with the, the little kids crying. Yeah. But um, are they effective? Will they do anything? I don't think they're going to do anything in this moment immediately right now. I mean, the idea that Donald Trump is going to sign gun reform legislation addressing gun violence or that Mitch McConnell is going to bring it up is a joke. And Democrats should not fall into that trap. But what I think is a very positive sign is that these Democratic candidates are not running away from the need to address gun violence. 
None of them are pretending they're hunters like they have in the past, and I've talked about this a bit on here. None of them are trying to uh, appease um, kind of a part of the gun-supporting population that they feel like they need or they need to win over. Um, that, to me, is a positive sign. I think a lot of these groups are playing the long game. They're willing to see incremental change. That's good. But they also want to impact the psyche and kind of move people. Like, you know, I would say many suburban women who think their kids are going to school in safe neighborhoods and they're sending their, ki their kids are coming home and talking about the gun drills they did. Yeah. That impacts people in a way and people who would have maybe voted the other way in past years. So I think it's a long game, not a short game effort. Do you, th do you think the politics on this has changed? Well, I don't just think it, I know it. In fact, there's some data from the last few days that suggests that, that gun issues have now surpassed immigration as the, the most important issue for a lot of voters. That said, uh, I, I think it could be a tipping point. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. And, but as a Republican strategist, I can write the ads right now because Better Work has now said out loud what Republicans have been saying all along, that Democrats do want to take your guns, they want to take away your private insurance, they want to take away border yeah. security, give health care to illegal aliens, give away free college, and, by the way, $1,000 to every voter. Right, and, and in fact, the president fired back today on what Beto O'Rourke has been saying about taking away semi-automatic weapons or so-called assault weapons. He tweeted, quote, Dummy Beto made it much harder to make a deal, convinced many that Dems just want to take your guns away. We'll continue forward. Uh, I'm not sure if the president is saying he's not going to work on this or not, uh, but, the, but except for the dummy part of it, that is what uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg and some others, Senator Chris Coons, have said, that that uh, Beto is making this more difficult because he's he's making Democrats out to be the enemy instead of a group to work with. Right. Look, I like Jen. I think it's unlikely that they actually pass anything or that Trump actually supports anything. You never know where he's going to come down. But I actually think Trump is your best bet because he is sort of a wavering compass on this. Uh, and so if he feels support building, he might do something as opposed to many other Republicans. Uh, but the problem is that the Democrats do have a candidate, Beto, who was desperate enough to say the quiet part out loud. And that is all that Republican voters and Second Amendment supporters need to hear because they have suspected it for a long, long time. And they will dig in their heels and say no with good reason. And meanwhile, Attorney General uh, Bill Barr back on the Hill, Capitol Hill, for the second time uh, this week, a document has been circulating around the Hill floating the idea of the administration supporting expanded background checks, requiring them for all advertised commercial sales, including a gun shows. Trump administration officials are sharing this document. But the White House says that the president has not signed off on it. And the NRA just put out a statement opposing it. I mean, if you're a Republican legislator from a from a moderate state or, or a, a swing district and Bill Barr's in your office saying this is what we want to do. And then you hear Hogan Gidley at the White House say, well, the president hasn't signed off on this. What are you supposed to think? I think you're supposed to. Um, I don't know what you're supposed to think. <clears throat> I do know. I do know that if they watch those ads, though, I do know that if they, if they don't have a heart, I don't know if they watch that and they don't have something pulling on their heart. I don't know what it is that's going on inside their minds. Um, I grew up in Detroit in the 1980s. I remember studying, sitting between my bed and my closet because there was gunfire outside the windows when I was studying. I remember being at a party, seeing a guy get shot four cars away from me after a high school party when I was there. I gotta tell you, as now as a parent, as a new parent, uh, I watched that ad and I think maybe Beto was right. Maybe what we need to do is go get the guns. Because if kids are going to school and this is, and, and that, Watching that ad affected me more than even being in those situations when I was a kid. I just think, I think we're playing politics with something that is uh, very tough. Do you, do you think that uh, the suburban white woman vote, which uh, is kind of up for grabs in a lot of elections, right. 
this might be an issue that pushes a lot more? I think that is the area where it's most likely to make a difference, this messaging. Although I will say, if the message is, if you disagree with us on gun policy, uh, then you are a monster who wants children to die, it's ineffective in convincing people. And uh, Second Amendment supporters have heard it one million times, and you will not change any of their minds with it. Uh, And I think it's heavy-handed and doesn't work. What's the most effective message, then? Look, I actually think these ads are incredibly effective and can be incredibly effective with exactly that group. I will say, Beto O'Rourke, I'm happy he went out there and said this. He's probably not going to be the Democratic nominee. He's not an elected official. I'm not sure we're going to be talking about him in eight months. We will be talking about this issue. And unfortunately, gun violence will still be an issue. And there will be many, many moms in these suburbs who will be scared and fearful for their kids. And so I don't know that they're going to feel like they're being bullied. They're going to want to get something done. And that's why I think this still could be very effective. And maybe we just move the needles a little bit further in the direction of doing something. Well, Trump, awesome. Trump invites everyone to run on that. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, the fact is that the, the, the president and Republicans can't support an issue that has 90 percent support in the country, including way over 60 among Republicans, just on simple background checks, suggests that the power of special influence like the NRA still has a hammer. All right. Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up next, how far Democrats might go to hear from a whistleblower silenced by the president's top intelligence chief. Stay with us. In our national lead, quote, credible and urgent. That's how the inspector general of the U.S. intelligence community describes a recent whistleblower complaint. Now, the law states that the director of national intelligence now has then had seven days to either hand the complaint over to the congressional intelligence committee leaders or to appear before them to explain why he didn't. Acting spy chief Joseph McGuire, however, did not do any of that. And he's now refusing to comply with the subpoena from the House Intelligence Committee to turn over the whistleblower complaint. And his office says he will not show up for a congressional hearing tomorrow on the issue. Let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, what comes next now? Well, there's a big question here on Capitol Hill about exactly what is going to happen and exactly what the nature of this complaint is uh, something that has raised alarm bells on Capitol Hill was language that was in a letter that came from the office of the director of national intelligence last night that said the complaint here involves confidential and potentially privileged matters relating to the interests of other stakeholders within the executive branch. What exactly does that mean? There's a lot of questions that Democrats have. Is it something that this whistleblower may have seen that raised concerns about actions within the Trump administration, within the White House? We just don't know the answers to that yet. And there are also questions about why this complaint has not been transmitted to Capitol Hill, whether the president himself had any role in that. Now, the question is whether or not Joe McGuire, the acting director of national intelligence, will actually appear tomorrow at a hearing that the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, has set up for Thursday morning. At the moment, it does not appear that he's going to appear because the, his office has pushed back, saying they want more time to comply with these records requests. They said they want more time to discuss this matter with the committee, but Schiff has threatened to issue a subpoena if McGuire doesn't show. We'll see ultimately what he decides to do. But a lot of questions here, Jake, about what exactly this is about. Jake. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. I want to bring back former CIA counterterrorism official uh, Phil Mudd. So you heard that, uh, Phil, yeah. according to the letter from the general counsel from McGuire's office, the complaint was about stakeholders within the executive branch and involves, quote, 
potentially privileged matters? Translate that for us. Uh, let's differentiate between intelligence, what's going on in Russia, North Korea, and dirt. Let's say there's a dispute between some people in the intel community and the White House. Stakeholder? White House is a stakeholder. That's potentially privileged information. I suspect that this relates to embarrassing stuff within the intelligence community in Washington, maybe related to a place like the White House, not related to stuff like North Korea and Iran. Take a listen uh, to Congressman Schiff. He's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee uh, talking to CNN. The DNI acknowledged that this involves someone apparently outside the authority of the DNI, uh, um, someone above the DNI. There aren't that many in that category. Again, translate that for us. Uh, Who's above the DNI? I mean, nobody in the intel community. That's, again, got to be a White House person. It's certainly not a member of Congress. And and you know what this ends up with? And Schiff is pointing out to us, rock in a hard place. McGuire, the guy involved the DNI, is a good guy. I know him a little bit. My friends think he's terrific. He's stuck between his boss, the White House, the executive branch, and the guy, Adam Schiff, who's supposed to get the whistleblower stuff. And I'm sure McGuire is saying, what the heck am I supposed to do? Why don't you guys figure it out? But... Isn't it just the law that they have to turn over the information or at least ex- or appear in person and explain why not? You would think so. And if I had to bet in Vegas and I am a better, I would bet that eventually this stuff comes out and McGuire turns it over. But there's got to be a dispute, I think, between whether the information is appropriate to pass over, whether it complies with the law. The problem here is the general counsel is a political guy. The inspector general is not. Who would you trust here, Jake, in terms of being impartial? I'm going to take the side of the general of the uh, of the. Uh, Inspector General. Does this concern you at all? What's going on here? It concerns me a bit because if you put it in context of the White House uh, systematically telling Congress, screw you, we're not telling you anything. This fits into that context. It's also, again, I know people outside the Beltway don't know McGuire. He's a decorated SEAL. This is a good guy who's stuck. It concerns me because another good man is caught in a White House problem. All right, Phil Mudd, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, the soft-spoken 16-year-old who had the attention of Congress today. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series today, an activist and international force in the global movement to curtail climate change testified on Capitol Hill today. But here's what you may not have been expecting. She's only 16 years old. Greta Thunberg from Sweden pushed back against those who argued the U.S. should not take any bold action on the climate crisis if countries such as China, for instance, are not doing the same. I am from Sweden, a small country, and there it is the same argument. Why should we do anything? Just look at the U.S., they say. So uh, just so you know, that's, that is being used against you as well. Thunberg traveled to the U.S. on a zero-emissions sailboat. She met with former President Barack Obama yesterday. CNN's Bill Weir also caught up with her, and he joins me live now on Capitol Hill. Bill, this is a, a soft-spoken girl, but her words are, are having an impact. And it's even more remarkable, Jake, when you meet her in person, because she's so tiny. Uh, she's so uncomfortable in crowds and with small talk. She's certainly the most effective activist in human history who didn't want to be part of the spotlight. And one reason why is her Asperger's. She admits her, her mom has even been very open about her diagnosis almost as a superpower when it comes to this topic. Listen. My diagnosis has definitely helped me keep this focus on this uh, because when you are interested about something, you just continue read about it and you get super focused. 
And for her, it's, it's motivated by the fact she sees this as a matter of life and death. While adults look at the climate crisis and say, yeah, but it's so complicated. For her, there is no yeah, buts. And it's remarkable when you consider less than a year ago, she was inspired by the kids from Parkland who walked out of school to demand gun reform. And so she plopped down in front of the parliament in Stockholm. And within the second day, she had company. Within the second week, she had a viral movement. Within months, she was scolding leaders at the UN. Hmm. And she's known, she's known, oh. Until the Swedish election. And then I and other school striking children thought that why should we stop now when we are making our voices out and when we are actually sort of changing the debate about this. So the interest, Jake, just grows and grows. But, but again, it's so telling how she speaks truth to power. Yesterday, a bunch of Democratic lawmakers were lauding her, comparing her to civil rights heroes. And she says, look, I don't want your praise. I want your action. I would be in school if you guys did your job. <laughs> um, and, and speaking of that, Thunberg's known for her Fridays for Future campaign, where students go on strike uh, on Fridays. Uh, what are her plans for this week here in the U.S.? Yeah, so she inspired the Fridays for Future. Alexandra Villasenor, who's been in front of the UN for, I think, 39 weeks. So she'll be right in the middle uh, there with those kids. Uh, 500 different cities and sites around the country are marking the climate strike on Friday, not just school kids. There was 1.4 million in March. They think they could double that, at least around the world, uh, on Friday as well. And she's also going to the UN uh, with a number of other young people from different countries around the world to file a formal complaint with the UN Council on Child's Rights. They say a livable planet is the right of every child. All right, Bill Weir on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much for that, Bill. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead, CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks so much for watching. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.